Well, good morning again, and uh, thanks again for having me this weekend. It, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege. Uh, it's, I think it's probably just part of human nature that we tend to develop a little um, you know, limited vision where we just look at what's in front of us and we focus on our own little patch of the world. And I always find it really deeply refreshing to get out of Sydney uh, and to visit another church and to see that God is at work uh, not only in Hornsby, but also in Port Macquarie, and that reminds me that he's at work uh, to the ends of the earth. So thanks for the encouragement of being with you and for your fellowship uh, this weekend. It's been a really deep encouragement to me. We're working through these great biblical truths summarised for us in the Apostles' Creed, not all of them, uh, and so we're skipping over now the resurrection, that's going to be assumed, and jumping to Jesus' ascension. Uh, we started yesterday morning looking at the Lord Almighty, the sovereign God in an anxious world, uh, maker of heaven and earth, the creator God in a materialistic world. Uh, we focused then yesterday afternoon on God in the flesh, uh, the present God in a lonely world, and then this morning God on the cross, the suffering God in a guilty world. And so we come now to God on the throne, the reigning Lord, the ascended Lord uh, in a contested world. World. And I hope, hope you see as we've been going through this that why I call these truths to live by. Uh, these are not just biblical truths that we file away in our brains and tick a box, yes, I understand that. Uh, these are truths which give us life and shape our lives. And so I'm going to pray that God will continue to do that for us now as we come uh, to his word, particularly in Acts chapter 1. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you didn't leave Jesus, your son, in the grave. But on the third day, you raised him again to new life. That through his resurrection, you defeated death and opened up the way for us into eternal life. And we thank you also that after 40 days, he ascended to heaven and that he is now seated at your right hand and reigns there until the day when he will come again. We pray now that as we reflect on that great truth of Jesus' ascension and his rule and reign at your right hand, that you'd help us to look up to him and to look out to the ends of the earth and to look ahead to the day when he will return. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm in the middle of teaching our second child how to drive. Uh, in our family, it's compulsory that you learn on a manual. Uh, it's good for them. I'm not sure it's good for us. Uh, we're halfway through number two, so nearly two down, three to go. <laughs> One of the things you have to be ready for, especially if you want to teach your kids to drive on a manual, is that the car is going to stall. Uh, that's okay in the first few days and weeks when we're learning in a car park, a deserted car park when there's nobody else around uh, and the car stalls and, well, doesn't really matter. It's a very different thing when you stall, as happened just last week, on a three-lane major arterial, arterial road in Sydney in the middle of peak hour, <laughs> and she's panicking and I'm panicking and it's not a good place to be. Stalling is something that uh, catches us, especially in that kind of situation. And I wonder if sometimes you've felt as if the work of God's kingdom has stalled, has, has been driving along... At, Good speed, nice and smoothly, and then suddenly it's stalled. Or maybe even that it's going backwards. I don't know what kind of discouragements you've experienced in the work of God's kingdom, but I'm sure, like me, you've had plenty. Uh, and as you go on in the work of being a Christian, of 
taking your place, of working alongside brothers and sisters in the work of God's kingdom, I'm sure you'll experience more. It's discouraging, isn't it, when people you've loved and invested in walk away from the faith. When leaders who have taught you and led you, provided even godly example for you, fall into sin and let you down. It's discouraging when your efforts to advance the gospel seem to be frustrated and going nowhere, when your prayers for a sister or a brother or a friend or a workmate seem to go unanswered, when God's kingdom just doesn't seem to be advancing. Our most basic Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, shouldn't we expect God's kingdom to be advancing more powerfully and more visibly than it seems to be? Shouldn't the churches be overflowing with people? Shouldn't the church have more political clout? Shouldn't Christian morality be more widely accepted in society? But in fact, the world seems to be going in the opposite direction. The gospel is ignored. Many of the churches seem to be shrinking. Whatever political clout the church may have once had is quickly being lost. Christian morality is in fact being maligned as immoral and marginalised at a frightening pace. What was once considered good is now regarded as evil. What was once recognised as sin is now celebrated on our streets and trumpeted on our TV screens and taught in our schools. If Jesus is Lord, shouldn't the world be different than the way it is? Well, the good news that God has for us today in this passage is the news of Jesus' ascension, that he is Lord, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and that he is building his kingdom even if it doesn't look like we might expect. And so when God's kingdom doesn't seem to be advancing, we need to look up to the ascended Lord, to look out to the ends of the earth, and to look ahead to the day when Jesus returns. Uh, those are our three points. The first one's the longest, the second's a bit shorter, and the third is shortest of all. Uh, so let's jump in. Jesus' ascension uh, is his enthronement as Lord. It's the assurance that he's in control, that he's building his kingdom even when we can't see it. It's a truth that even the apostles struggled to see at first. Uh, you remember back in Luke 24, at the end of Luke's gospel, just before this episode in Acts chapter 1, where there were two of them walking along the road to Emmaus, and they were walking along with their faces downcast, and Jesus appears to them after his resurrection, and yet they're kept from recognising him. And, and so there's this beautiful irony in the conversation as they express their disappointment. What are you discussing as you walk along on the road, Jesus says. Uh, and Clopas, one of them, says, are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the things that happened there in these last days? And Jesus, I think we've got to imagine it with a wry smile, says, oh, really, tell me. <laughs> what, what things? <laughs> We'd hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, they say. But he was crucified. It's now the third day. So obviously he wasn't. Obviously we were wrong. They were downcast, you see, because the advance of God's kingdom didn't look like they thought it should. And so Jesus reveals himself to them in, in the breaking of the bread and he proves that he's alive and he explains to them from the scriptures that this is God's plan, that, that the Messiah had to suffer and after three days to enter into his glory. 
And when we pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is with them again, appearing to them during the 40 days, proving that he is alive, teaching them about the kingdom of God, but they still don't get it. Uh, and so this should be some comfort, just as a side note. Uh, these guys have had three years of intensive theological college with Jesus and, and then a 40-day-long a long intensive on the kingdom of God and they're still struggling to get their heads around it. So if there's some things in the Bible that we're struggling to understand, then we're not alone. Because they ask him as he prepares to leave them and uh, they're still banging on the same drum. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? We'd hoped that you had been the one to redeem Israel. We haven't seen it yet, but maybe now, Jesus, maybe now the program can proceed according to our expectations. Maybe now you can really demonstrate that you are Lord. Maybe now you'll expel the Romans and re-establish the kingdom of David and cause the nations to stream to Jerusalem and hear the word of the Lord as we read about in the prophets. Maybe now you're going to establish your kingdom in the way that we expect. But Jesus disappoints them again. Verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They're looking for God's kingdom to come in power and glory, but it's not yet that time. Just as the Messiah had to suffer and only after that enter into his glory, so those who follow him will suffer and only after that enter into the glory of God's kingdom. And immediately after this last exchange with the disciples, Jesus ascends. Luke's the only one who tells us this story, but he tells it twice at the end of Luke 24 and then once here uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts. Verse 9, when he had said these things and as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And so Jesus leaves them and they watch him ascend and they stand bewildered gazing into the sky. They're looking up, but not with faith. They're looking up with misunderstanding and confusion. They're looking up, wondering where he's gone, trying to locate him in the heavens and failing to see the significance of his ascension. They stand gazing up into heaven, unable to make sense of what they've seen, so two men in white robes come and stand by them and explain it. Verse 11. Jesus, who has been taken up into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go. Uh, can't you see they're saying, here is a human being who's been taken up in a cloud and he's going to come again in the same way you saw him go. Are you hearing the echoes? Have you read the prophecy of Daniel? Don't you remember in Daniel chapter 7 where there's a human being, there's one like a son of man who comes in great power and glory to rule over all the earth and he comes on the clouds of heaven and don't you see he's been taken up in a cloud in preparation for the day when he's going to come again in the same way on the clouds in great power and glory. He's the son of man, the one from Daniel's vision. What you've seen is not yet the fulfilment of that vision but it's the promise, it's the foretaste, it's the sign that he's the one who will come again and establish God's kingdom in all its glory. And so he's been enthroned. He's been taken up to rule with God. He's been located in the place where he prepares to come from when he comes in power and glory to manifest that kingdom over all the earth. And the disciples stand looking up, gazing into the sky. And at first they don't get it. But when God sends his spirit in power on the day of Pentecost, the penny drops. 
And from that point on, it's the apostles themselves who over and over again start proclaiming the truth of Jesus' ascension. He's the Lord. He's been taken up into heaven. He's seated at God's right hand. He rules over all. He's the one who'll come again. And so Peter, already on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, says God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. He has been exalted to the right hand of God, verse 33. This is the fulfilment of Psalm 110, verse 1, another scripture, uh, Peter says, where David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see, the penny has dropped for Peter. He, he, he now understands what Jesus' ascension means. He understands that Jesus is the one who is seated at God's right hand and who will come from there in glory. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter proclaims the same thing again, together with all the apostles in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 30. The God of our fathers has raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, but God has exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness of their sins. What they didn't understand when it happened before their eyes soon became clear. Jesus' ascension is nothing less than his enthronement in fulfilment of Psalm 110 verse 1. He is now at God's right hand in the position of power and authority. He now rules over all things and so he is the son of man from Daniel's vision who will come again in power and glory and manifest that victory in his second coming. And that makes all the difference when the gospel's ignored, when the church is maligned and marginalised, when God's kingdom doesn't seem to be advancing. The, the apostles learn to look up and, and to remember that Jesus is on the throne. And that enabled them to press on in serving him even when it seemed like everything was against them. Remember Stephen, of course, in Acts chapter 7? He's hauled before the Jerusalem council. He's interrogated by the high priest. And yet he speaks with such great boldness to the very authority that sentenced Jesus to death. And they become enraged. They grind their teeth at him, it says. It's clear that things are not going to end well for Stephen. But he doesn't flinch. He doesn't look back. He doesn't water down the message. He presses on, even when it's clear it's going to end in his own death. How does he do that? Well, by looking up. By looking up to the ascended Lord, Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cry out and they rush together at him and they throw him out of the city and they stone him to death. And from the outside... Looking on, it looks like that was the end of Stephen and his influence. Except the Lord to whom he looked up was looking down and working out his purposes even through Stephen's death. The Lord was looking down and advancing his kingdom even through what looked like defeat. And so Luke is careful to add there in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, that there was a young man, a guy named Saul, who witnessed these things and approved of the stoning of Stephen, a young man whose life would end up be, being turned around when he too looked up 
when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and he sees Jesus on the throne and so gives himself to serving God's kingdom to advance the same kind of preaching that Stephen had been giving. Church history is full of faithful people who are cut down in their prime, of gospel efforts that seem to have cut off, been cut off before they reached their fruition. One of my heroes is a guy called William Tyndale. Uh, he was a young Bible translator in the 1520s in early Reformation England when the Bible was only available in Latin and most of the common people couldn't read it. He was forced to flee to the continent from England because King Henry, this is Henry VIII, didn't want the Bible translated into English. Uh, that would give the people too much power. They could read it for themselves. And so Tyndale lived as a fugitive for most of his adult life. Uh, he wore disguises, he grew a beard, <laughs> he moved from one town to another. And as he did that, over years, he translated the New Testament. He published it in dribs and drabs while he was on the run. Found a publishing house here, another publishing house there. Out comes the Gospel of Mark, out comes the Gospel of Luke, until eventually he translated the whole of the, Bible, whole of the New Testament into English. Job half done, or less than half done, because there's much more in the Old Testament than the New Testament. So he taught himself Hebrew while on the run. Uh, he, he got help from Jews in the synagogues on the continent. Uh, he took any opportunity he could. He taught himself Hebrew. He starts to work on the Old Testament. He keeps working until 1536, when at the age of about 40, Henry's men find him. They've been chasing him on the continent. They capture him. They strangle him and then they burn him at the stake for good measure. Here's another Stephen, another faithful man cut down in his prime whose efforts to advance God's kingdom seem to have been cut off before they've reached their fruition. And yet a man who'd learned to look up, to see the Lord on his throne, the king who was king even over the king of England. And so he was able to pray famously at his death for the king who was persecuting him. His famous last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Beautiful. Like Stephen, like Jesus, praying for his enemies. From the outside, it looked like that was the end of Tyndale and his influence, except the Lord to whom he looked was looking down and working out his purposes, even through Tyndale's death, so that remarkably, within two years, King Henry had authorised an English translation. Turn around. His prayer was answered. And when they got to work on King Henry's authorised translation, whose work did they use? Tyndale's. Uh, and so his translation came through into what was first the Geneva Bible and then the King James version of the Bible in 1611, a generation later. And then every English translation ever since has built on that tradition so that still the Bible you're holding in your hands, 70% of the words there were given to us by William Tyndale. Were his efforts wasted? So what about us? <laughs> what are we going to do when the gospel is ignored, when our efforts to advance God's kingdom seem to be frustrated and going nowhere or even backwards, when the church is maligned and marginalised? Yes, there's an important place for evaluation, for changing strategy, not changing the gospel but maybe changing strategy, for listening to advice, there's wisdom in all of that, but more important than all of that, we know what we need to do, don't we? We need to look up 
to see that Jesus is on the throne, that he's in control, that he is building his kingdom even when we can't see it. And when we do that, it will enable us to also do something else. It will enable us to look out, look out to the ends of the earth. Before he ascended, Jesus gave the apostles a promise and a command. It's there in our passage, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' ascension creates the space for the mission of the church. Luke introduces the book of Acts in Acts 1.1 by saying that in his earlier book, he's talking about the gospel, in my earlier book, Theophilus, he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven, Acts 1.1. What does that imply? This book, the second book, Acts, is going to be about all that Jesus continued to do and teach after the day that he was taken up into heaven. And so traditionally we call this book the Acts of the Apostles and it's not a bad title, but there's a proposal, I like it, to say that we should call this the Acts of the Risen and Ascended Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Risen and Ascended Lord Jesus because it's a book about what Jesus is doing and if you want the longer title, then you'd say it's, it's the Acts of the Risen and Ascended Lord Jesus by his Spirit through his Apostles and the whole church to the ends of the earth. But that'd be a bit of a mouthful, so we'll just call it Acts. <laughs> The point is, Jesus is on the throne. When you look up and you see him there, you realise that the mission of the church is his mission. It's his mission before it's ours. He's the one who commissions his apostles as his witnesses. He's the one who promises them power and then pours out the Holy Spirit to enable them. And when you look up and you see him on the throne, you realise that he is the Lord of all not just over Jews and Samaritans, but of all people everywhere, which is why he commissions the apostles as his witnesses. How far? To the ends of the earth. It took the apostles some time to work this out too. It took them a while to get their heads around the ascension. It also took them some time to get their heads around the universal mission. Think of Peter. He was there on the mountain in Galilee in Matthew 28 when Jesus says... As you go, make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He was there in Luke 24 when Jesus appeared after his resurrection to the eleven in Jerusalem uh, where he explained that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name, Jesus said, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Peter was there in our passage in Acts 1 when after 40 days of training, Jesus commissioned the apostles as his witnesses to the ends of the earth three times. Peter had heard this command, at least. But it took a while to sink in. Uh, you remember the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11? How the Lord was at work in this Roman Gentile centurion how the Lord was preparing to save him through the preaching of the gospel, how it was the Lord's plan that Peter should come and take the gospel to Cornelius, but Peter wasn't ready. He's there one lazy afternoon in Joppa, waiting on the rooftop for his lunch to be prepared, <laughs> and the Lord sends him a vision to press home the message that it's time for the gospel to go to the nations. Peter's perplexed. And when the messengers from Cornelius come, he goes with them, but, but it seems against his natural inclination. It's only when they, unbelieving Gentiles, tell him that the Lord has called Peter to preach the gospel to them. God, the, the Lord told uh, us that you're the one who's going to preach the gospel. Oh, okay, says Peter, I better go. 
And it's only when he actually preaches the gospel and God pours out his spirit even on these Gentile believers that Peter finally gets it. Now I understand, he says, that God doesn't show favouritism. Now I understand, he says, that Jesus is Lord of all. Peter learned to look at the ascended Lord. And so he learned that the church's mission is his mission before it's ours. And so he learned to look out to the horizon that the Lord has given us for that mission. And so he learned to play his part in what the Lord is doing to bring salvation to the nations. What about you? Uh, Have you learned to look up to the Lord to direct you in your part in his mission and so to look out to the ends of the earth to see where he wants to deploy you? The job is to be his witnesses. And the role of witnesses is to speak of what we've seen and heard. The apostles, of course, have a unique role in that. They were eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus did from the beginning, beginning with John's baptism all the way through to Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And that's why in Acts chapter 1, a little bit after our passage, when they were looking for someone to replace Judas, you remember, the key criterion was it needs to be one of the men who's been with us the whole time from the beginning who can also be a witness with us of the resurrection. Our witness is not like that. None of us were there for the whole story. None of us personally witnessed the resurrection. And so our witness to Christ is dependent on theirs. Our witness to Christ is shaped by theirs and ruled by theirs. We can add our testimony, of course. We can speak about how the Lord has worked in our lives, and that's good and right, and it can be powerful. But the rule for what we say about Jesus, the standard of the truth to which we testify, must always be the witness of the apostles as we find it in the pages of the New Testament. Still, even though the apostles have that unique role, the basic task hasn't changed. You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're taken up in that apostolic commission. And the job of witnesses is to speak what we've seen and heard, to tell the story of what God has done in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. We haven't seen it with our eyes, but we've seen it in the pages of the Gospels as the apostles testified to us about it there. The job is to declare Jesus is the one who has ascended, who sits at God's right hand and who will come again to judge the living and the dead. The job is to do that in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, wherever the Lord might put us. That might be just down the road or it might be on the other side of the world. The point is it's his mission, not ours. I grew up thinking that missionaries were extraordinary people. Uh, and, and in many ways they are. <laughs> but I loved reading uh, biographies, William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Eric Liddell. That was the stuff of my summers, reading these uh, fantastic biographies of the great heroes of the modern missionary movement. The stories were so remarkable, so extraordinary, that I thought those missionaries must be a rare breed. And then I got to uni and I met this guy called Matt. He was almost exactly like me. <laughs> Brought up in the suburbs public school education, average kind of family, Christian, doing a degree at Sydney Uni. And so it took me by surprise when he told me that his plan was to translate the Bible for a people group in northeast India, the Rajah people who didn't yet have the Bible in their own language. He seemed so ordinary. 
And yet that was such an extraordinary task. He met a girl called Donna. They married. They studied at Theological College. They signed up with Wycliffe Bible Translators. They went to far north India. And they've been there 20 years. When they arrived, the language group, the Raja, didn't have their language in a written form. So how do you translate the Bible when there's no written form yet? It was only an oral language, about 200,000 speakers of this language group. Matt came back to Australia, did a PhD at uh, ANU in Canberra. The PhD was working out a script for this language. Uh, they went back and they've started to translate the Bible in this script they chose the letters for the sounds. They borrowed from other languages roundabout. They produced dictionaries. And he and Donna have begun training people in writing the language and then translating the Bible. And they did the Gospel of Mark and then Luke and then parts of Genesis. And they're still going. One of the beautiful things they did is they started writing Christian songs. This, this one always makes me tear up. Uh, the first ever Christian songs in that language. I was speaking to Matt last time I was out and he said, I wrote this song and my prayer is, this is a bold vision, my prayer is it'll have the same kind of influence on Raja culture that Amazing Grace has had on English culture. Amen. But every time I come back, like they come back from a break and we catch up, I'm struck at how ordinary they are. They struggle with disciplining their kids. They get sick, their car breaks down. They wear thongs. <laughs> <laughs> They're just ordinary people like me who looked up to the ascended Lord and so looked out to the ends of the earth and prayed that the Lord would show them the tasks that he had assigned for them. And so that's the question to ask, isn't it? What tasks has the Lord assigned to you? Where's he calling you to bear witness? It might be just around the corner or it might be at the ends of the earth. The key is to look up and, and, and to look out to find your part in his mission and so join in. And one other benefit of when you do that is that you learn to be content with the task that he's assigned to you. Uh, I was chatting to a Presbyterian minister the other day and asking him about his plans for future study. Uh, he, he's spoken to me several times in the past. I want to do a Master of Theology, then I want to do a PhD and I want to get into some kind of scholarly work. And, and so I was catching up. I said, how's the plan going? He said, you know what, Murray, I'm a little bit older, a little bit wiser. I've realised that's not for me. The Lord has called me to be a pastor. That's what I'm cut out for. I think I'll do an okay job. That's where the Lord has assigned me and I'm really content. I thought, that's it. He's looked up, he's looked out and he's found his place in God's mission. What is it for you? For many of us, it will be serving him faithfully in our daily work in whatever tasks he's assigned to us. Using our gifts to serve in the little pocket of God's kingdom that we call Port Macquarie Presbyterian Church. <laughs> Raising our children, teaching Sunday school, serving on the music roster, speaking about Jesus with our non-Christian family and friends. For many of us, it's going to be very ordinary. But it will be anything but because the living Lord who sits on the throne is at work even through you as you bear witness to Jesus to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth. When we learn to look up to see him there and so also to look out to the ends of the earth, we also learn finally and more briefly to look ahead to Jesus' return.
back in Acts 1. That's what the angel says to the apostles, verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. You see, Jesus' ascension creates the space for the church's mission until Jesus returns. And so in the period between his ascension and his return, that's the task where he's witnesses to the ends of the earth. But he will return. And when he does, he'll complete the job himself. He'll come back, the angels say, in the same way you saw him go into heaven. How did he go? Personally, bodily, visibly, and a cloud took him out of their sight. How's he going to come back? Personally, bodily, visibly, on the clouds, so that every eye will see him and every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's what we're to learn here. Jesus was taken up on a cloud and that confirms that he's the one who will come on the clouds in fulfilment of Daniel 7 to rule over all the earth. He's seated at God's right hand and that confirms that he's waiting there, according to Psalm 110 verse 1, until the day when his enemies will be made his footstool, when he returns to earth to reign in all his fullness. He'll complete the job. God's kingdom will be established when he comes again. And when you realise that, you can press on, even despite the opposition and the disappointments and the setbacks, even despite all the times where it looks like God's kingdom is going backwards. Think about the Apostle Paul. At first, he vehemently opposes the gospel and persecutes the church. He had to learn first what? To look up. Jesus made sure of that when he appeared to him on the Damascus Road. <laughs> you have to learn what next? To look out when the Lord on the Damascus Road and then through Ananias commissioned him, you're going to be my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. But he also had to learn to look ahead, to look ahead to Jesus' return. How else could Paul have pushed on in the mission that the Lord had given to him through beatings and imprisonments and betrayals and shipwrecks and floggings and false accusations, when it looked like God's kingdom was going backwards, how else could he push on unless he'd learned to look ahead to the end? That's why he could press on in ministering to the Thessalonians. Do you remember what happened in Thessalonica? He preached the gospel, Acts 17, uh, for a few Sabbath days, and then he was kicked out of town. Uh, he and his associates with him. And the church in Thessalonica was persecuted. And yet Paul pressed on and ministering to them in prayer. He sent them letters. He sent Timothy back. Even though Satan himself was hindering the work, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2. How? What enabled him to press on? Well, he says, 1 Thessalonians 2, you Thessalonians are our hope, our joy, our crown, our boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming. I'm looking forward to that day and so I'm pressing on. It's why he could persevere with the Corinthians. You remember that church? The messiest church in the New Testament. And even if, in the face of all of that mess in Corinth, even despite all the opposition with the super apostles, so-called the false apostles, who opposed Paul and his ministry, how was he able to press on with them? Well, he tells them himself, 
uh, when he reminds them of the prayer that he prays and encourages them to pray at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians. Our Lord, come. Maranatha. He's looking ahead, you see, to the end. That's why he could write in Romans 8.18, despite all the sufferings and the hardships he faced, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so it's no surprise that we find Paul at the end of the book of Acts advancing God's kingdom in a place where it looks like God's kingdom is going backwards. Where does he end up? Under arrest in Rome for two years, unable to leave the house. Is this a setback for God's kingdom? No. God's word is not changed, as Paul writes to the Colossians. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 30, we read, He lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to visit him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul's life and ministry, like William Tyndale's life and ministry, like Stephen's life and ministry, like Jesus' life and ministry, ends in what looks like a defeat. If we go with the church uh, tradition outside the Bible, then not long after this, Paul is executed uh, under the persecution that breaks out under Nero in Rome. Uh, But here at the end of the book of Acts, here he is a prisoner. Many of his friends have deserted him. It looks like, for all intents and purposes, the kingdom is going backwards. And yet it's exactly that ordinary, weak-looking ministry that brought the gospel to Rome, strengthened the church there, and from Rome allowed the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth. So what about us? Have we learned to look ahead when the people we've loved and invested in walk away from the faith, when the leaders we've looked up to and trusted let us down, when our gospel efforts seem to be frustrated and going nowhere, when when churches close down, when when, when the Christian message is attacked in the culture, when God's kingdom doesn't seem to be advancing, where are we going to look? We've got to look up and out and ahead. And remember that we're not there yet. We're not there yet in the new creation. And so the work of God's kingdom will be contested. That's how it's going to be in this age. It's only through suffering that we'll enter into the glory. And so God's kingdom will be contested and opposed and confused and shot through with sin and failure. But Jesus is on the throne. And so we can press on. I got a call the other week from a uh, a friend uh, who's now a, a minister, was a student. He left college bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, uh, ready to change the world, <laughs> ready to preach the gospel and advance the kingdom. The church to which he was called was moribund. It was tied up in traditionalism which buried the gospel. It was stuck in a time warp 50 years ago, if not more. It was disconnected from the local community. The leaders seem to be more interested in maintaining the status quo than in leading any kind of uh, renewal in gospel-centred ministry. The church, to no surprise, was having very limited impact in the world and so he began gently, slowly, over a couple of years, to challenge the church to change and reform. He preached the gospel, he called for repentance and faith, he worked with the elders, uh, 
It led to conflict and opposition and heartache and he had to leave. There's no doubt he contributed as well. He'd be the first to confess he wasn't entirely innocent. Whenever, whenever these kinds of things happen in churches, it's complicated. Uh, it's messy. There's no doubt it could have been managed differently. But there he is, burnt out, disillusioned, wondering where to next. What do you say to him? I didn't know what to say except to pray. We prayed and it was him at the end of the conversation who put it in perspective. He said, I've got to make sure I learn the lessons. He said, I need to take some time out. I'm I'm burnt out. I need to be refreshed and renewed. But the bottom line, he said, is Jesus is on the throne. I'll get back into it soon enough. Right? There's a guy who's learned to look up and look out and look ahead and I've got no doubt he will get back into it soon enough and in his weakness and amidst those struggles the Lord who's on the throne is advancing his kingdom let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you that you have raised Jesus from the dead that he is seated at your right hand that he has poured out his spirit on the church and so we pray that you would teach us to look up to him to remember that He is seated on the throne so that when we face difficulties and setbacks and disappointments in the work of your kingdom, you'll enable us to keep looking out to the ends of the earth and looking ahead to the day when he returns. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.